Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with Anna Swee, founder and designer of her namesake fashion brand. I wanted to ask Anna about her company's response to the current protests and her thoughts on fashion's direction based on her 40-ish years running her brand. Hi, Anna. Welcome. Hi. Hi. Nice to be here. Wonderful to have you. Did I get it right? Going on 40 years, yes? Yeah, it is. It's been a long time. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, I definitely... I want to dig into kind of all you've seen because, I mean, I feel like fashion is going down an interesting path. Um, but, but before we go there, let's just talk about timely events. Obviously, um, the world is in a wild place, unprecedented. None of us have experienced anything like this before. Um, can you tell me, I noticed on your Instagram, you you have your Black Lives Matter post. You have a Blackout Tuesday post. Um, what was your initial... Um, I guess response. You ran. You went pretty quick compared to some other brands. Um, was it just a no-brainer? We're going to get in there and support. What was your approach? Well, it just seemed like it was like the perfect moment in history for this like revolutionary uh, change to happen. I mean, like I'm old enough to remember as a kid the riots in Detroit in '67 and the protests against the war and. Um, so many um, uh, racial uh, confrontations all through the 60s. I'm, I'm, I'm old enough to remember all of that. And it seemed like each time it was going to happen that there would be a change and we, it would be temp- it was temporary and then all of a sudden it just drifted again. But this time, I don't know, it's different. It's, it, there's just, it's so all-inclusive this time. I think it's not two different factions of um, races, it's all races. And I think so many age groups and so many um, institutions that are even behind, you know, making this happen this time. So maybe this is the perfect moment. Maybe the vulnerability from the COVID gave us this this um, kind of thought process that, yes, we have to make it happen this time. We yes. have to. Yeah. That's it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that, like you said, yeah, we're all in on this. Um, it's not race against race. Would you say that social media um, and definitely um, folks holding brands accountable? Um, what how important is that or how key is that to kind of driving this forward? Is that does that is that playing a big part in your eyes? Oh, definitely. I think that there is such an overall awareness of everything, every voice and Every voice can be heard now. It used to be you had to be powerful to be heard. You had to have the right uh, four uh, TV stations following you to get your voice heard. And now everyone can be heard. And I think that that's, that's the big difference. Definitely. Would you say that fashion has a diversity problem? Well, I'm Chinese. And, you know, it, it's, it's kind of I had all those obstacles to overcome Also, you know, I came from the suburbs of Detroit Um, at the time when I started designing. There really weren't other Chinese designers, maybe in the design rooms, but not in the forefront. So, I mean, I I understand it. And but that's part of what gives you kind of like that uh, drive to make it all happen, too. And you have to wait for your moment. And now, right now, this is the moment for um, black designers and companies to step up you know it's it's like now the curtains are open 
you know, go for it. And I think that that's really where we're at right now. Definitely. I Going into this interview and kind of reading up on some interviews you've done in the past, I love what you had to say about um, maybe when you came to New York, um, it was a different, which is our fashion capital in the States. It was a different, um, a different world where maybe you didn't have to have this privileged background or have a lot of money and to get in the mix. Like you could wear thrift clothes and it paid cheap rent. And it was more, I guess there was more opportunity for more, more diverse voices to be in this fashion scene. How would you describe it? Well, I think it was a matter of um, economics and politics that I was able to do it. You know, in the 70s, New York was just, it was a war zone. I mean, there were so many deserted places. The East Village was just, you didn't go there. Um, downtown was unheard of. It was still warehouses, um, Soho and Tribeca. And, but again, those economics made it possible for young people to come here and be artists and create and really break through. And, you know, we all like hung out at places like CBGB's and Max's and the Mud Club. And so many people out of that scene really, really were nurturing their craft at that point and broke through. Um, it was just, a, it was just a perfect opportunity because you could afford to live in New York at that point. Now I think the economics are different. It's kind of unaffordable for young artists to live in New York. They have to find um, less expensive places and lofts and uh, uh, studios outside of New York, probably, um, like Queens, Brooklyn, Bronx, New Jersey. Um, so it's a little more difficult, where, whereas we had still areas of New York that were available to us to kind of um, start our, 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 our businesses and start um, and work on our, on our arts. Yes. And coming from this, I guess, creative uh, group of friends and acquaintances, and I'm sure it just seems like a colorful mix. Did it just, was it just a seamless transition? I think your first runway, maybe you showed Naomi, like d diversity maybe wasn't top of mind. It was just what you did. How would you describe it? Um, it wasn't seamless. And it took me 10 years after I started my own business. Um, before that, I had worked a little in, in the garment center, too. Um, I, I worked for some big sportswear companies, not like, uh, that showed on runway shows, but they were big companies. So I really learned my craft during that period. And I think that, um, through the 10 years that since I started my business, I really learned how to do business. I really developed those relationships. Um, it was the beginning of Barney's co-op, um, it was the beginning of a lot of department stores looking for young designers. And again, you have to seize the moment. You have to um, get on that stage. And I remember being in Paris with Stephen Mizell. And uh, when we were flying home, he said, okay, now we're going back to New York. You've got to do your own runway show. And I was terrified. I thought, how can I show after I just saw shows like um, Versace, Comme des Garçons, Chanel, um, Jean-Paul Gaultier, you know, those kind of that, that level of show. And here I am just having taken the business out of my loft department and found like half a floor in a garment center building on 8th Avenue. You know, it's like, how do I do it? But my friends all kind of stepped up and really helped me. Yes. Talk about your path. It was Parsons. It was getting into Barney's was the ultimate. Can you describe kind of your path versus, I mean, what would you 
even recommend to a young designer today? First of all, you had that tradi- traditional path, the ultimate designer path, yes? Well, Other than the, really. the blood, sweat, and tears. <laughs> was really this crazy goal that I had since I came to New York when I was about four or five to be a flower girl in my aunt and uncle's wedding. I went home to Detroit and I said to my parents, when I grow up, I'm going to be a fashion designer and move to New York. Not really knowing what that meant, but it, it sounded good. It, it was a way to get to New York. And um, I, as a child, I saw an article in Life magazine, which every um, family got at home weekly. And there was an article about two young ladies that went to Parsons School of Design. And when they graduated, they moved to Paris. Elizabeth Taylor opened a boutique for them. And I thought, oh, I have to go to Parsons. Not really understanding that one of the young ladies' stepfather was Irving Penn. You know, it just, you know, as a kid, you don't know that. You just think right. Parsons. And my babysitter had Seventeen magazine. And I remember always looking through it. And in the back, there was always an ad, registration for Parsons School of Design. So I wrote to them. And I started understanding what it was you needed to have to get into Parsons. And I really geared my junior high school and high school years to doing that. And I was accepted early and I was at Parsons when I was 18. Yeah. Yes. There was was the start of it. Um, And would you recommend that same path? I know that um, a lot of brands are kicking off these days uh, with, you know, a someone that went to business school, how important you have this creative <laughs> genius mind, the world of Anna Sui, everybody. I mean, that's such a, a phrase now because you, anyway, a creative mindset. How important is it to have like a business side or a business, uh, I guess, b- business expertise going into a brand? Um, did, was it important to kind of link with the right people? Um, and how important would you say that is today? Um, well, I have to admit it's a different world today. And you're competing against other business school people. So you probably need that under your belt. But in the old days, it was all instinct. It was, it was really learning your craft, learning your resources, and who you knew, what your connections were. And, and you know, it was, it was much more, um, there was much more of a structure. You, you had uh, fashion directors at every major department store. You had um, certain buying offices that were representing all the coolest boutiques around. And all those people knew what the new lines were, what the new designers were, what the trends were, and they kind of shopped it. And you would go to those people and show them your collection. So it was, it was a little different structure. Now I think it's, it's not as um, much of a, a a community that it was. And, you know, I mean, we had this legendary buyer from Bloomingdale's when Bloomingdale's was the fashion store, Cal Ruttenstein. And he had the best instincts out of anybody in the business. He would see something and know it was going to be a trend, know it was going to be what the next big thing was. And, you know, it's kind of like we don't have that that sort of representation anymore. Yes. Is it more like every man for himself? And uh, as everyone moves to direct to consumer, you kind of just, you have to sell the brand. You have to be the eye, the voice, the cat. Was his name Cal? Yeah. Um, it's, it's a little bit of all that. And it's also because of the internet that you have to be good at a lot of other things besides design. I think that you, know, you have to be able to represent, you have to be able to communicate, you have to be able to um, kind of spin a story that rings 
true, but also it's what people want to hear. You know, it's, it's a different, it's a different time now. There's, yeah. there's a lot more that, uh, of, of a game you have to play almost where you have to use the right catchphrases. You have to represent almost politically what, what you're trying to say. Yes. You're being judged a lot. You know, there's, there's just too many, too many um, people that are listening in to what you're saying. Yes. It's more, is it more, you can't just be a brand. You have to be vocal about your values, your beliefs. I don't know. I don't remember that you've ever, um, talk to me about like your role as a political voice. I know a lot of designers have done like a message to you on the runway or they've had a big statement on the runway. Have you, um, kind of considered thought, thought of that as your role or do you see that as more going forward? Not really. I mean, I, I arose to challenges that came, came, came about. You know, I never even thought, how can I start my own business when I'm a woman, when I'm a minority? I, I, I didn't use those obstacles. It's like, this is what I had to do. I was very driven and I just figured out how to do it. And if you couldn't get in one door, you'd figure out another door. And I, you know, and I always felt that using any of those excuses was creating an obstacle for myself. So I'd much rather find my own way find my own path. Um, and I think that I had a lot of determination. Um, although I'm a very shy person, when it came to business, I knew what I had to do and I stepped up to it. And I think that's really, you know, it, politics never even came into it. Yeah, that's so interesting. Uh, we have to talk about uh, the pandemic. And first of all, where are you calling from today as opposed to your office? I, I'm at home. Um I've, I've been going into the office because we've had orders to finish. Um, we've had uh, shipping to do. Um, I've been doing a lot of um, quality control and pinning tickets on garments and, you know, just everything to get the orders out. But um, our office still isn't open yet. And so I- I'm calling from home today. Yes. So New York Fashion Week coming up and supposed to be coming up in September. Um, I just like your show was always a must attend. I must say I had on my screensaver on my phone. Uh, you had a double runway. There was Gigi on one and there was Bella on the other. And that was like my screensaver. I got the ultimate shot from the side. <laughs> um, but anyway, <laughs> your runway was always it's such a it's such an event. Um, how important is a runway show for your brand to have that moment? Um, is it as important as it once was? Well, you know, for me, that was my the ultimate expression because that would give my entire message, um, not only what the clothing was about, but what the story was behind it. And I'm a storyteller. I loved transporting my audience. I loved um, creating the soundtrack. I loved doing the backdrops and also uh, the ambiance of the show, the lighting. And, and you know, the, these last few seasons, I've played with lots of different ideas. Um, one of the shows that Gigi and Bella were, were in, we created kind of a bazaar and, and I invited all my favorite vintage dealers and um, artisanal um, designers that I worked with to set up a market in the, in the, where the runway was and the models wove in and out. Um, I, I, I feel that, that we haven't come up with a better way of showing clothes or it becomes too static. It just becomes like clothes need to move. You need to see them in motion in order to understand them, or at least I do. 
Like sometimes I see a flat and when I see it in person, I don't even recognize the garment because there's not that dimension to it. So um, I don't know. It's going, it's going to be interesting to see how people do it digitally. Um, I think we've been talking about it for the last 20 years, but I don't know that anyone has come up with the best concept for it. Yeah. I know. I feel like it will be hard to do your your grand storytelling um, on this little small screen, but um, <laughs> we shall see. <laughs> um, talk to me about your relationship right now with um, department stores. Um, I know you've you have like a, a recent pop up that went digital with Nordstrom. Um, yeah. How crucial are department stores right now to your success? Well, I mean, that was such an exciting opportunity, and. Um, Quite frankly, they were going to build 10 shops in uh, 10 different Nordstroms, and they designed the cutest shop that really had the atmosphere of my store and the excitement of um, they took uh, elements from my exhibition. And so it was it was really going to create a sensation. And besides my clothing, um, they asked me to pick out my favorite suites. Um, we had some uh, T-shirts that we curated and other little products that were kind of representing more of the world of Anna Sweet. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. So we built something digitally, um, which was great, but not not quite the same thing. Um, I think that, again, I grew up in malls. I grew up knowing where every department and every department store was and knowing how to shop it. And, you know, it, it was the way I learned how to shop and the way I looked at fashion. So for me, what's going on is kind of like the it, it's a changing world. Although I do admit the first thing I do every morning is look on um, on my iPhone and see, you know, what every every um, uh, e-commerce has yes. and what the new, the new shipments are. And did they get the, the latest um, Dries Van Noten boots or whatever it is that I'm lusting after, you know. So I admit that I, 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 I've learned it quite quickly. Um, but almost there's nothing as exciting to me as walking into a store and discovering something new. Some, some a designer you've never heard of, something you've never seen before. I think you know that's what I love about flea markets. You get that same kind of thrill when you when you see something and you just you know your mind just gets going about like who created this and you know what what was it all about and 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 I don't get quite that same thing online. I usually react to something online because I've seen the fashion show, I've seen the press, and then. And then like, oh, that's, those are those boots. That's what they look like. You know, whereas when you see something for the first time, it's, it's kind of a different impact. Yes. About the thrill of the hunt, the discovery for sure. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you think that because people uh, get excited when they see, you know, your clothes, clothing on the runway for the first time, was there um, has there been discussion about moving to see now by now? Is that part of the equation for you? No, I, I've never believed in that. I think, you know, we cut to order, basically. Yeah. We don't produce a collection and then sell it down to sell down the inventory. We cut to order. And I think, you know, I think making too much of something is such a waste. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, my company can never afford that. So we show we get the buyer reaction and we order the fabric according to the orders. So we're left with very little at the end of the season, uh, unless there's returns. But, you know, yes. besides that, there, it's not this excess where we're making 500 of a garment so we can get a good price 
And then we hope that we sell 300 and 200 goes on discount somewhere. You know, it's just, okay. that's not, that's not my business model. Totally. Do you think that, um, yeah, that's the smart, that's your key to survival right now. Have you seen, how have you, would you say that you have thrived or survived um, during this time of everyone staying home, not going out, buying sweatpants? <laughs> um, well, you know, okay, first and foremost was everybody's health and making sure everybody was safe. And I think that this really gave us a chance um, to um, really realize the seriousness of, uh, of this uh, pandemic, but also gave us a chance to kind of catch up finally, because don't you feel in the last five years, you've never caught up because, you know, if, if you're on a global time clock, you're answering emails in the middle of the night. That's because, you know, I do a lot of business in, in Japan or um, you're, you're re reacting to somebody in Europe or, you know, you can never answer something fast enough, but you're waiting for the answer from Japan to give someone in Europe. You know, it's just like you never could catch up. And you always had that anxiety day after day that, oh my God, I didn't do this. Oh my God, I didn't do that. And finally, it's like the clock stopped. And, and the first thing I thought was, okay, I'm going to do everything that I never had time to do. And that included organizing my closets properly, <laughs> um, organizing all my books. And uh, I still have tons of DVDs and CDs and just things and throwing away the ones that I didn't want anymore. And, you know, organizing the shoes, you know, all those yeah. things. But I hope that everyone else took that opportunity too. And then it gave you time to really reflect and, and kind of um, think about what's important and really take time. I mean, one of the best things that's happened out of this, it's the first time in years that I've talked on the phone with my friends and nice. spent like a good hour talking to them. You know, you're not in a noisy restaurant. You're not in a, at a dinner party with, you know, 12 other people. You're one-on-one -on -one and you can just talk about all those things that you always think after when you see somebody, oh, I should ask them about this. Oh, I wonder what they're thinking about that. You know, here you have time just to like chew the fat. You know, it's like it, yes. it's been so made us all so much closer. And it's just it's so endearing to be able to spend that time. You're more of a girl to pick up the phone rather than get on a Zoom. I'm I'm a phone girl. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, I'm old school, but I mean, but I, I don't think I've been on the phone with any of my friends in years. Yes. And finally, these these last few months. It, it really gave us the time to talk about things and made us closer. Definitely. Yeah. You mm -hmm. mentioned your business um, in Asia, Japan. I know that. Um, let's talk a little bit about your beauty fragrance business. Is that, am I correct that that's a bigger booming business um, outside of the U.S. and maybe the Asian market? Um, talk about what's going on there outside of the U.S. Is U.S. really a small mm -hmm. piece of the pie for you? As far as uh, fragrance and cosmetics, yes. Yep. In fact, probably in China, I'm more known for my lipstick and my uh, perfume than I am for my fashion. Yeah. Um, but an exciting thing happened on uh, Saturday. The World of Anna Sui exhibition opened in Shanghai because they came out of the um, pandemic and they the city opened up and they decided they wanted to have a big exhibition and a fashion one. And so um, it opened Saturday. Um, That's awesome. it, it was kind of short notice that it was actually going to happen. So it was really a wild month 
to get everything organized and together. But when I see the pictures of it, it's just spectacular and so exuberant and so, so positive. And I think that that's the message that everybody needed. And I think the reaction has been overwhelming there. Yes. I I saw your exhibition um, I oh, right near Columbus Circle. It was like uh-huh. easy access, like walk across the street. <laughs> but um, talk to me about that. Um, the kind of, um, I think that a lot of folks, fashion, tell me if you agree with me, is maybe moving from this creative, playful, fun um, <laughs> vibe. It's more kind of tame and a little bit conformity. I'm not sure how I would describe it. Um, but um, how important is that to kind of be able to look back, kind of see the history of a collection such as yours? I guess the inspiration that goes into fashion and the... Anyway, I feel like a lot of that is lacking. First of all, would you agree with me that fashion is moving? Everything it, you just said. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm glad you said it and <laughs> I did. <laughs> but but I, I it's it's really true. And We've seen this happen before. We've drifted into this minimal look before, this um, kind of almost uniform look. And what's and business usually gets bad during that period. Um, and then all of a sudden, something more embellished will look good. Somebody, one designer will do something folkloric or um, uh, embellished, or you know, just it, it just suddenly it's like a pendulum. Whatever is in right now, the opposite is going to be what's what's going to make people excited and think like, oh, that's the next big thing. That's that's it. So hopefully after this period, we're going to swing full force into something. You know, we've been talking. Um, I've been discussing a lot with my friends about like what happened after the big influenza epidemic, the flapper. I mean, a youth culture. And, you know, dazzling clothes and this, the hemlines went way up and, you know, the, the women became loose and, and modern and <laughs> smoked and wore makeup, you know. So let's hope that there's something exciting like that that's going to happen. Yes. People want to get dressed up and go out. So help me. Um, (laughs) um, I heard, tell me about your, I guess, I don't know if it's a a test or if you're going to go all in on this. um, I guess it's like, I don't know if it's a full collection, activewear, something that you launched in China recently. Is that something that you want to go into more heavily? Are you kind of just testing it out? No, no, definitely. Um, Actually, the sponsor of the World of Anna Sui in Shanghai is my partner that's doing um, Anna Sui Active. And they, we've added um, uh, three rooms of activewear in the show, um, showing some of the inspiration from the Anna Sweet collection mixed in with the result, which became the Anna Sweet Active. Um, and they're about to open their third and fourth stores in Shanghai. So we have one in Shanghai, one in Beijing, and now there's two more opening in Shanghai. And I'm hoping that next year we'll be able to bring the collection here. Oh, how great. Mm-hmm. Any pieces? You still you have your one store in New York, is that correct? Yes, in, on Broom Street, yes. On Broom uh-huh. Street, I thought so. Um, first of all, tell me about your take right now on physical retail. Is one store that will suffice for now? Do you want, um, I don't know, are you hesitant to go any deeper? Yeah, I mean, I did have a lot of shops in Japan and China at different points. And it was never me that owned those stores. It was always someone that that built them out, but with um, guidelines to follow the exact image of the Anna Sui store. Um, and that, that always worked out really well because it kind of transported the world 
with the, the collection. Um, we have um, three boutiques now that are open in Japan. Um, you know, they just came out of their um, closures too. So it's starting up again. Um, and I think that it's, it's always helped to showcase the collection. I think that we have to come up with a new business model as far as how we're going to be able to sell clothes. But again, I don't know what's better than like walking into a space and you have this whole environment and yeah. it transports you and puts your head into a different space. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't know, like I remember going to London in the seventies and walking into world's end and you see the pirate collection and you have, you just had the bow, wow, wow cassette that you listened to. And then here's, here's all those clothes that you could buy. I mean, what's better than that? You know, I, I, I just, I just think that there's going to be another way to do it. Mm -hmm. Yes. And for a brand, like you said, to get kind of immersed in this world, you definitely, um, over the years, uh, here and there, uh, it's been kind of a slow rollout of new categories, um, to kind of create this full lifestyle brand. Um, tell me about, uh, the importance of that to, to again, um, have stability, um, to have these maybe lower end items. You can grab a lipstick as opposed to, Mm -hmm. you know, a costly jacket. Um, tell me about that balance for you. Sure. Um, I think, I mean, Coco Chanel taught us a perfume can support you forever. It's still supporting Chanel. You know, it's like, um, those licenses are so important because it's very hard to make money on clothes. Um, there's, there's just so many reasons why, um, something always goes wrong. You have to recut something. Uh, there's damages, there's, um, returns, you know, there's always something where once somebody loves a fragrance, it, it sells like my best selling fragrance we launched, I think in 2006, and it's still the number one fragrance um, in my, in my, um, selection of fragrances. Um, and you know, my, my theory is that every product that I do, like every tube of lipstick has to give my customer the same excitement that an Anna Sui runway dress does because they don't have the lifestyle. They don't have the budget. Um, they don't have the need maybe for an Anna Sui dress, but that lipstick that when they see that packaging and they open it up and they see the tube and there's a whole fantasy in the tube. And then the product itself is like great quality. Those, yeah. those are, have been the keys to um, our cosmetics and fragrance. That makes sense. Is it um, maybe that a younger shopper is buying uh, your, your beauty fragrance cosmetics and maybe an older shopper who knows, who's been to your exhibition and knows <laughs> the, the history and the amazingness that it is anyway, but who, who is your shopper? Would it vary by category? Yeah, it's, it's, it's several generations now. Um, you know, I, I can see it really, really showcased in Japan because I used to go there at least twice a year and meet my customers. And I remember some women that came to me and I was their first perfume or I I was their first lipstick or their first little pocket mirror that went in their purse. And through the years, they started buying my clothes. And then maybe, um, 10, 12 years later, they bring their baby and, and their mom, you know, so it's just like, it's, it's kind of like that because I think that my clothes aren't really an age group. They're a spirit and different people can relate to it because there's always that quality of nostalgia in there. So maybe some, some women will think, oh, this reminds me of, or I love the, the tea rose scent 
or um, I want this this bottle to sit on my shelf. I, 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 and some people would buy one to use and one to save, you know. Um, and, and I think, you know, that's the same thing with my clothes. Like some things are obviously trendy and, and for like a younger customer. But then there's really some classic pieces like beautiful jackets or beautiful coats, um, some dresses. People tell me that they wore it for their wedding and they're still wearing it. And their husband tells them they're beautiful when they wear it. You know, it's like, it's like yes. that's the ultimate when you hear that sort of thing. Absolutely. But on the younger uh, customer topic, uh, tell me about this Animal Crossing partnership. <laughs> because you're definitely getting inventive. You're exploring some new things. How did that come about? Um, um, I saw a glimpse of something that was talking about Animal Crossing. And I, I uh, called my niece, um, Olivia, and she does um, a, a stop action animation she she took a gap year from college and she's been out in portland doing it and that's her favorite thing and especially during this time when she's been at home a lot she loves playing animal crossing so i said do you think we could you know do the some pieces from the collection and so she explained to me what the guidelines were and then i sent her some pictures of runway stuff and I mean, she captured it so well and just, and it was just so playful and so, so fun, but kind of went hand in hand with a lot of, of things I designed. And um, she's creating, I think, 12 outfits now to go and uh, coincide with the World of Annesley exhibition. Oh, so that's great. going um, live soon. Yeah, she's almost done. <laughs> okay, great. The new digital tech savvy <laughs> and <Anna> sweet. <laughs> Perfect. Well, let's just look forward. Uh, Danny on my team is doing a story today. I don't know if you would agree. He's just talking about the fact that, that like, um, as as everyone's still, you know, sales are struggling, suffering. Um, he, he's talking about like the big conglomerates and how they're getting bigger and the smaller guys are, are independent guys are struggling and how he sees a shift to more, um, yeah, conglomerate dominant mm-hmm. domination. How would you describe that? Is there, is that a, a threat well, to the industry now? Well, that's my theory <laughs> yeah. that business school and, these um, bigger companies buying up all the smaller companies, it has really made only the fo- focus only on the numbers. And I think that it doesn't allow for that creativity anymore, that merchant idea behind selling. Yep. And I think that that's why stores are failing, that there's not that excitement anymore. I mean, again, it's old school, but when you used to walk into a store like the old Henry Bendels or like the old Bloomingdale's or Bergdorf today still has that feeling. You discover, you're so excited and like you see something, you can't afford it, but then you can't stop thinking about it. So you save up all your money and you buy it. I mean, my first purchase was a fur coat because uh, it was at Bendels and it was a Carl Lagerfeld had designed it. And I just thought, I can't live without this coat. The coat <laughs> lived better than I did for years because it went in cold storage every every summer. And um, nice. I only could afford it because my company was owned by the same company as Henry Bendel's at that time. So we had a, a company discount. And it's just, you know, it's like, that's how obsessed I am about fashion and about clothes that I would let my coat live better than I did for years. <laughs> <laughs> I get that. So, I mean, I, I just think that 
we need to create that kind of desire again. And it doesn't have to be on a luxury level. It could be even more artisanal. And I think that that's what I'm feeling now is that, that so many people have spent time during this period and tie dyed or learned to crochet or, and I think that we're going to see a resurgence of that to see, see the value of handmade things again. And I think that, you know, it's become price prohibitive, but if we can maybe put together something like, like the way the arts and crafts movement was, it was a total reaction against the industrial revolution that these artisans got together and wanted to show the beauty of handcrafted things. I think somewhere we're going to find a a balance of that. Um, People taking time and making it themselves rather than it being um, digital. (laughs) Yeah. I think that there's going to be a reaction. Yes. A new appreciation for artistry, craftsmanship, people. We're going in a good direction. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Well, Anna, this has been an awesome conversation. I truly appreciate you you. taking the time. Of course. Of course. (laughs) Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks for making it so fun. Of course. Thanks Thanks a lot. That's all for this episode, which was produced by Pierre Bienname. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Don't forget that we're offering Glossy Podcast listeners 20% off an annual Glossy Plus membership, giving you unlimited access to fashion and beauty stories. Use the code podcast at checkout. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. See you.